This podcast is brought to you by the new term at fxphd.com. Hand in hand with FX Guide, our training site FXPHD allows you to do online training with the benefit of industry professionals to guide you. This new April term includes training in Nuke 7, Hero, Editing, Grading, Lens Tech, and even Maths for VFX. Check it all out at fxphd.com. You're listening to The RC, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hi, and welcome to this week's RC podcast covering all aspects of digital cinematography. This week we're going to be covering a whole bunch of topics, uh, but mainly around workflow. In fact, this is our workflow special. We'll be looking at um, the new CC version from Adobe for Premiere, uh, Final Cut 10, a bunch of stuff uh, like... um, Bulletproof and uh, other apps that we are using for R3D and normal file management. And as a special guest in the Red Room, we have Richard Gale from, yes, I'm going to get this. Um, <laughs> okay, it's Dog Shit Lenses. Not actually spelt that way. Dog That's Shit Optics. Dog Shit Optics, I apologize. Um, we're going to be talking about this and a whole lot more on this week's uh, podcast, where we see our role to mine the news, filter the blogs, and go down our now rather infamous rat holes. This is the camera tech we discuss, obsess argue about and sometimes even eventually work out so this is the conversation we want you to be a part of so join us this week and i'm joined by jason wingrove in the pod pod hello i'm in the pod i didn't mean to correct you on your beautiful intro no, there no that's true it is well, uh, i got it this right, I, get it right. I, I am put off by having to say dog shit um <laughs> even though it's spelled not swearing in the russian sort of spelling i believe I'm not swearing god forbid we should should swear on this podcast that's true yes shit no Uh, So, uh, in a second, we're going to get into a bunch of workflow stuff around digital cinematography because it's a while since we've focused on that side of things. And also, um, we've got a week without a large number of cameras being released, astonishingly. Yeah, it's been quiet on that sort of front. So, it's all workflow. So, I'm just going to shut up and let Mike talk. (laughs) Well, before we do that... um, Especially when it comes to the bit about FCPX. Yes, well, that's coming up later in the show. Um, thanks, Jace. But yes, before that, um, we do have a little bit of news uh, around uh, the uh, the traps. So let's um, let's hit that now while we uh, we can. And uh, Jace, I wanted to extend our discussion of Magic Lantern, which will feed into this uh, workflow discussion mm, when we were talking about it last it week. Extending, yeah. Yes, when we were talking about it last week on the show, Magic Lantern was out with a 14-bit raw recording possibility going to certain types of cards. We had not really tested it ourselves. We were sort of discussing the fact that it was out. We'd seen clips since that's happened. Uh, certainly for me, for uh, background fundamentals over at FXPHD, we've been shooting green screen tests, comparative tests. We've been looking at the H.264 versus the um, uh, side HDMI output versus RAW at 1920x1080 and at uh, 720p. And um, I've been really uh, pleased with the results. I will say that it is no, it is not yet simple to install. In fact, it's not even yet it's simple. It's a complete to, pain in the balls. <laughs> it's not even simple to know where you should go it to get is, files to install. It is a dog's breakfast, that site. I love what they're doing. I think it's fantastic and the whole crowdsourcing thing. But, oh, my God, it is like it's – I think it's one of those it's, – it's the kind of like the barrier to entry that probably should be there anyway, that if you're too stupid to not even find the correct files, then you should not be doing this stuff anyway because you're you know, in a fair chance of bricking your camera. It's uh, – I guess it's – yeah, if you pass the intelligence test of finding the files, then you're allowed to move on to the next, uh, the next circle of hell. 
But um, Next circle of but it's it, it's interesting. Should we just talk about that now? I mean, actually, yeah, can sure. I jump back for a moment before we do it? I want to. Uh, can we talk about your results when you were doing the clean HDMI out? Because I've seen sure. a lot of stuff, and although I'm, as you know, fairly uh, very uninterested in recording externally, um, I was interested to see whether there would be any difference between uh, the, the clean HDMI out on the 5D Mark III with the latest 121 firmware or not. And I think the general consensus is not bloody much difference at all. No, there is a difference. Um, it depends what you're oh, doing. You would say that. Okay, well, here's the really? thing. Really? I haven't seen much, maybe apart from green screening. Well, I, I was testing All the side-by-side. Side. Please tell me. Sorry, I'll shut No, no, it's fine. Uh, it's, it's true. It's hard to uh, pick out some stuff when looking at uh, test charts. And also it's hard just for looking at stuff without kind of testing them um, extensively. So that's why last week we were holding back on giving out kind of judgments because we didn't want to just do that thing where people say, oh, this is awesome. Well, have you used it? Well, no, but it seems like it could be awesome. All of these results, and I should say the clips that we shot and everything are, are, as I say, in uh, background fundamentals as part of um, PhD for this week. But the long and the short of it, if you've got a scale between 0 and 10, and if we just assume for a second, this is not a quality scale, this is just like a relative scale. If you start at, at, at 1, how many steps do you take in improving quality by going to the alternatives? Mm. I would say that it's uh, you'd move from a 1 to a 3 by going to... Um, HDMI because what you get is a lack of the compression artifacts, especially when keying. You still get pretty much the 8-bit. You still get um, uh, almost everything else, though there is a slight improvement in sharpness. And then when you go from there to the RAW, you get a step up to about a 9. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, RAW, completely different. But I think for a day-to-day, if you're not doing green screen, probably the pain and annoyance of doing the external... HDMI isn't isn't really there. There is no real major, um, apart from a subtle bit of sharpness, um, no real huge uh, leap of. Uh, it would be slightly quality. better for grading because you'd be skipping the compression artifacts that we're seeing um, in it. So I'm not going to say it, it's. It depends what you're trying to do. If you're trying to get pretty pictures out. And you're so happy. There's like less banding and stuff in graduated stuff. Ah, or well, banding is a property of the bit level. So, no, it's yeah, got the same no. level of banding. It's the quantization um, cubes. Yeah. So, you know, when you see little squares that look mm. like um, macro blocking or whatever, just yeah. blocking when, when, yeah, if there's not enough detail or the bad stair stepping if in, exactly. in slow so graduated skies. You'll or get, uh, and, I, and I show all this, you get the gradation of the eight bit steps. And then you, and, and by the way, I did these tests with the raw stuff as well, all on the same material. Right. And took it to 8-bit, 1920 by 1080 in all cases, just to compare and, and sort of on a level playing field. But yeah, I would say there's definitely an improvement. If you were trying to do a lot of um, work with it, so that could be green skin, but it could be heavy grading. If you're trying to shoot day for night, if you're trying to do stuff that was going to be pushing the grade around a lot, it's possible you might want to do this. If you were trying to use it as a... Um, I don't know, a camera that was going to intercut with much higher-end cameras mm. and you were trying to squeeze everything you could out because you were trying to make that bridge p- as small a leap as possible. But certainly for you doing the sort of work you're doing where you don't tend to get the exposure that wrong in the first place and you don't tend to want to like grade the bajillicans out of it and you're not doing green screen keying. Yeah, generally shooting more for the image, which is generally what we're, most people in, doing, who are doing. Then I would say no. You know, and, it, and are used to doing regardless of what they're shooting these days. You know, 
you're used to just being that bit more careful or just protecting highlights and things, yeah. The roar is another story. That's amazing, I'm yes. afraid. I know it's you know, probably not cool to be too interested in it, but uh, I tell you. Why, why would not be it, cool? Oh, no, you know. It's hardcore camera tech. It doesn't get any cooler than Gear that. Gear doesn't matter. What? Unless it matters. <laughs> Sorry, why are we doing this podcast then? Um, Good question. Oh, my God, I've wasted five years of my life. I think that um, the raw is. Well, we discussed it last week in terms yeah. of being a slap in the face to the. But now we're really starting to see some things beyond a couple of seconds of run, and now they're really starting to get to the. Where it's at at the moment is that you can actually, if you've got the right fast enough card, you can record 1080 at indefinite running lengths with no overheating, 14 bit, very nice uh, looking images. Um, and it's just it's, it seems to be that it's only coming down now to a limitation of your CF card speed as to how far how, as to how long you can record or your frame rates or your uh, resolution. Um, I think if somehow we get over the limit of these these cards and we find a faster cards or we find a better way of capturing it. Um, you could go well beyond 1080p with this camera, or at least a little bit beyond it, 2K or 2.5K. I could mm, see happening yeah. with 1080. I think it's it's at with, the moment uh, that would be setting the listener's expectation that it was super easy to get to 1920 by 1080, and it isn't. Like you have oh, to be yeah. pushing it really hard to get to 1920 by 1080. Now, if you do have the right card, and I mean like a top of the range card. Yeah, because this is like a 75, it's topping out nearly 80, 80 megabytes bytes a second. Yep. And even cards that are rated at 1,000 times card that I've got testing it is not up to the scratch. And most cards that will say they'll do 150 or 100 megabytes a second, they're talking about read, uh, read times, not write times. Write times are significantly slower on, on any card. Uh, but especially with the CFs, we're trying to get get working. Um, it's very hard to to find cards that are up to up to the job. But maybe someone will crack some other some other workaround or whatever. But it's massive improvement in this in this hack at the moment, and it's it's been an interesting thing for me to actually play with Magic Land for the first time and see the menu and oh, see how Magic much in, never. Ah. I tried it and I just kind of got put off with the whole hacky kind of w- installation kind of stand on one leg and subtract the number you first. Well, no, actually, no. But hang on, but, back but up. it's a little bit no, easier but, now. But wait a second, it is a lot. E- okay, no, not for the raw, it's easier, but for the non-raw Magic yes. Lantern, you can put it on an SD card. Yes. If the SD card's in the camera, it runs it. If the SD card's not in the camera, it doesn't run it. Yes. Um, and by the way, that number that we had was sixty, uh, sorry, eighty-three megabytes a second on uh, twenty-four frames a second on ninety-two by ten eighty. Right. Um, but the thing about the new one is, in fairness to the Magic Lantern Collective, probably the best way to describe them, of um, of you know my kind of guys, <laughs> the the um, the the product is is an evolving thing in the kind of public sphere. So yeah. it's. It's like a pre-alpha, as it were. Yeah, every time I've tried to use it, I think when I first got the 5D Mark III, it was, you know, in alpha. And, and then you have to do this colorless sort of whole boot bootloading kind of... Um, yeah, it used to be You have to harder. do all this weird hacks to get it to launch. The final versions, when they are ready for, for prime time, as they have been in the past, and the final version, you can now non-sort of... 
raw capable versions for 5D Mark II and III and things are very easy to install and incredibly impressive to see, you know, the crop marks and uh, the level of control that you have over the camera. It really does make you sort of realise that even though Canon have realised the 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 need and the want and how much these cameras are loved in the field, uh, realise how much they are kind of holding back the software and the and the uh, we're not talking about I don't not talking about being able to run at a thousand frames a second or any kind of hidden kind of speed capabilities or quality capabilities. I'm just literally talking about the giving us the kind of menu functions that you might have on any normal professional digital cinema camera and I know they sort of you know trying to have a delineation between the 5D and say something like the 1DC but it'd be good you know just stuff like crop marks and uh, you know some very 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 simple menu stuff that uh, we're seeing in Magic Lantern that is not in the uh, native firmware yeah so it's interesting okay so the workflow because that's what we're discussing this week. The workflow for... The, yes, that's Because I'm going to say that... Uh, there's one other thing I want to add before I get to that, which is just, if you're looking at the install stuff, I'm going to put a link in the show notes for this. If you're looking for the install stuff for Magic Land, it's incredibly important, can't underline this enough, that you suss out the uninstall stuff before you put the install stuff on. So there's a couple of reasons for this. Firstly, you might accidentally get to a point where it doesn't go forward, in which case you need to uninstall and start again. Secondly, when you're finished with this, you may want to go back to just running it normally because this is going to have multiple different builds coming out. It's kind of not stable yet. So even if you were liking what you were seeing, you're going to want to update another version. You might want to clean, uninstall, and then reinstall yeah, the new version. Yeah, go use your camera on a production again and not want to get caught with some weird little hidden bug no one's found out and until you, that job. Exactly. And if you do do this, and because we've been doing it a lot, we've found some really interesting problems. For example, we had only one SDCF card which would work after we first uninstalled it. Right, no other card would work. Just one of them. Right, and then we re-uninstalled -un properly again, and now yes. we could get all our cards to work. So there, yes. are, even right. though you sort of think, oh well, I've uninstalled it now, and this card is in and it's working, you know, if we'd gone out in the field, put another card in, no other card would have worked. Go back to the first card, would have worked fine. Right. Um, so there's a there's a real serious commitment to testing both with Magic Lantern and after you've taken it off to make yeah. sure your camera's in a stable state before doing professional work. Okay, now back to the workflow. So when you come in from shooting, um, uh, for those of you that haven't done it with the uh, RAW files, what you're going to get is a, is a sort of basically a .raw file on your desktop and you're going to need to uh, then run a program which is RAW to DNG to convert that from the RAW to the DNG file. And one of the great uh, benefits of this is, of course, it skips all the picture looks. Now we're going to discuss one of the new ones that Canon released uh, recently, but just skipping all that, it's not because it's raw, basically. Mm. And so you're getting what is effectively, um, we loaded up in Lightroom. Uh, so we loaded up in um, After Effects. You're getting what effectively looks like a Lightroom control panel for picking, uh, you know, color and and uh, setting up all the uh, white balancey type stuff that you would do. Yeah, you get a little bit of pre-grading before yep. you go to DNG. Like well, it is DNG. It's on the import of the DNGs because after you've converted the .raw file, yes. which is a very much um, low tech. Right, this is after. This is post the raw to DNG converter, exactly. and then you put the DNGs into After, after Effects. Effects, and that's where you get control. Yeah, is it just After Effects though? Isn't not, nothing else taking DNGs? I do have, I do, I haven't really gone that far with the footage, but yes, yeah, so there's not a lot of things that will actually, funnily enough, read DNGs. 
We like the DNG option with After Effects because it's a it's a really good stable place to be working. And mm. if you want to adjust those DNG settings, you don't have to leave After Effects. So you can just reinterpret the clip that's already loaded. So let's say in our case we loaded a green screen and it was kind of off and the tint was way off. You could then adjust and reinterpret the DNGs inside the timeline inside your After Effects without having to exit out back again. Right. So it is a pretty sensible place to be doing stuff. Let's not make any bones about it. The, the, you said you could record as long as you like. Well, you can record as long as the card has capacity. And yes, are much course, bigger which files. Is, yeah, which doesn't last long. You've got three minutes on a 16-gig card. The DNGs, once we converted them, weren't that big. Um, I think it was about 3.4 meg mm-hmm. on the um, DNGs pre-After Effects, um, but after the uh, raw to DNG conversion. But, you know, that still kind of adds up over... Um, three or four, four gig, frames. you mean? No, it's like mega frame. Oh, I meant per frame. Sorry, yeah, yeah right. Yes. And um, and that's workable. So you can easily do that on a laptop, bring it in, uh, convert it, and um, and then do what you want with it. I then took clips from the After Effects and started keying them and playing with them in Flame. Um, the thing that I hadn't discussed last week because I just didn't know it, and the thing that I'm remarkably impressed with is the um, clarity, the sharpness yeah that is amazing sensational it is incredible and you realize how much quality is being lost when you go to the normal you know or go to the normal video h264 files i mean there is there is post sharpening applied normally um to our files because we use the cine style route Mm. and um, and i will discuss that in a second but i've got to say the just i i deliberately wore a knit type um jumper pullover thing because what we find with compression is that if you have a relatively um, kind of subtle frequency so I used to film my dog as a good example you know where the dog would have different colored hair but it was all in the same kind of zone of hair color mm. similarly the the top I was wearing this jumper pullover thing was a, a, a strong weave in blue had little flecks in it but it was all pretty much in the same kind of tonal range of you might call a steel gun barrel gray blue now, compression is going to say, okay, not a lot of high-frequency stuff here as opposed to, say, um, you know, a black-and-white sort of piece of text. So I'm not going to throw a lot of my compression at that, and that's where it's going to kind of smooth it out. Oh, my God, the difference in in my ability to read the weave of the jumper pullover I was wearing wasn't just like a bit. It wasn't just like, you know, I said before between 1 and 9. I mean, that was what it felt like. It felt like... Uh, it was a completely different camera. I would have said it was yeah, a completely I would have different picked lens. A, you wouldn't have said it was, I would have said it was some other camera. Yeah. There's just nothing. Completely. Yeah, it's like a Sony or it's like epic level sharpness. It is. It's incredible. And of course, it's 1920 by 1080. Um, we think it's actually getting into the buffer that happens. There's, there's two um, buffers that are leading to the camera. We used to think, oh, well, it can't be 1920 by 1080 and stuff if it hasn't been... Um, compressed somehow. How could it be raw? Because yeah, it's the pre-scaling. Yeah, it's the raw buffer before it gets scaled and before it gets before it gets H two sixty four of course, yeah. of course. But so you're getting a, a signal there now. It's it's really apparent when you start looking at the blue channel because the blue channel on the raw file, as I showed in this uh, class, incredibly clean. H two six four, incredibly not clean. They're hiding a lot of stuff in the blue channel, as one as any equipment manufacturer tends to do. So if you were doing blue skiing, king as opposed to green skiing, king, mm. oh my God, what a difference you would see. Yeah. And and that's also significant, of course, because it's a CMOS chip. And so the blue is already 
fighting it because it doesn't have as many um, light wells as a green, given the nature of the green, red, green, red, blue, green, blue, green CMOS chip. So yeah, for blue screen work, for green screen work, um, and just for image sharpness and clarity, it's uh, astonishing. Um, I did you see Stu's blog about this? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's good. I think his, good. his thing was some, not so much that this was the be all and end all, but this was uh, so important because of what it um, alluded to that could be coming. It could be seen as a a watershed moment more for its significance as a turning a corner rather than of a an end of it itself i've got to say though if i got this working in a stable fashion and i had to shoot some green screen yeah i've always been really down on shooting with the canon for any kind of effects work because it's just not you know h264 8 bit not not just happening for me um these files are are crackers yeah it's quite incredible i think what it's it's we've kind of ripped the kimono off and we've seen not just glimpsed it but we can sort of really see what's under the hood and uh i think as uh as Stu says it's no longer okay for cameras not to give us everything they've got now that we've seen we understand that there is That's limitations axiom like we aren't yes exactly axiom. exactly exactly mashwitz axiom uh we no longer you know we've seen that um what's capable and we understand that there's back-end issues with being able to physically record this stuff but now we see what the cameras are capable of it's uh we've definitely shown them that we we know we're kind of the game's up a little bit in a way and we know what is capable it's no longer okay for us to uh, really have as as hobbled or as um restricted images as we've been given and uh, we yeah. want we want more yeah. now we've seen it now, I'd like to say, it. offer something in Canon's defense, which is when the 5D Mark III was specced and being developed, there was no CF card that could hit these kind of numbers. Mm. So it's conceivable... Still kind of isn't, or very, very few. Very few, yeah. So it's conceivable that Canon was reasonably saying, look, we can't go this route because we just can't write it to a CF card fast enough. Yes, there are going to be CF cards in the future that will probably hit this, and when that happens, we'll release cameras that can do that. But for now, there's no point. Yeah, I can... I can. I would like to see that stuff like, say, if we have you know, C four hundreds or something in in the future where we have not necessarily larger sensors but are a far more capable codecs, and you know, right, you don't have to write to CF card. It's not a stills camera. No one's expecting it to write to a CF card. CF card is a. If you're calling this a di- dedicated digital cinema camera, then you know, write to SBIS or write to I don't know. God, there's probably lots of things. PCI, even if you go back and t- got to be tons of cards that are happier, that are happy to, or SSDs. You know, um, there's got to be pl- plenty of media that is more cap- that is capable of 90, 80, 100, whatever megabytes a second. And um, yeah, just just let us at it. Now we know it's there. It's kind of hard to. We've sort of been a bit spoiled, but but you know. You mentioned before about shooting at um, higher than 1920 by 1080, and I kind of shot you down a little, but I did think your point was really valid in that there could be a great option to shoot a wider than 1920, but less height than for a, you know, two, yes. three to one, five. Yeah, or one. the other way as well. If you want to do anamorphic, you can do a higher, because you have yep. basically have access to the entire full frame chip. You know, it's it's a matter of what bit you can tap out at and what bit you choose. You could do a, you know, you could do 1920 by 50 if you want to do a crazy 
something something nuts. You yeah, know, so you it would can, be you nice can choose could, this ratio. If you could go, you know, if there was like a, a a budget to be spent of pixels, you could spend your budget by going taller and thinner for anamorphic, or yes. wider and less height for for scope, and that would be a brilliant option. And again, it seems like that this budget is only limited to the wallet at the other end, the CF card that lets you spend that budget. You know what I mean? Isn't it interesting though? It's because like, every time you change the resolution, it's telling you what's illegal, what you can yeah. do, what you can't do. Because when you fire it up, it tests the card yeah. and it sort of knows the budget it's working with. So it's kind of clever already. Sorry, Mark, I interrupted. No, I was going to say, it, it, there must be this must be launching an arms race amongst the CF oh. card makers who are just think, you know, if I can produce a premium card that can handle this, I'll be able to sell it. Yeah. You know, right, left, and center. What I understand is, I mean, this is solid state, right? And the SSD, I don't know what the SSDs are capable of in like the SBS or what, what's the difference between, say, SBS cards or the the SSDs in, say, a codex or the SSDs in, my, in the Epic SSDs. What is the difference between that and the, say, what is it? The CF card essentially is, a, is an SSD. Right, I mean, you know, in, in essence, it's, it's a, a solid, solid, it's state. a solid state piece of, RAM, you know, of of memory. So, what's the difference in those two techs, and uh, how can we? Well, know, there are controls and there are the other. Yes, that yeah, yeah, true. I mean, I'm sure that eventually we'll get to the limit of the card controller, and you'll, you know, but at the moment it feels like it, it seems that the the um, the bottleneck here is is the media. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that evolves, but yeah, it's you know certainly exponentially uh, improving in in results and what's po- what's possible for going from like literally a second bursts where you have to get into the menu and hack your way through to even roll and cut. Now we've gone phenomenally you know, far forward in literally you know a week a week or two. So who knows what we'll be talking about next step? It might be completely not talking about it at all. Yeah. We're talking about Dragon by then. <laughs> it's also related to the bus, Sorry. don't forget, like that's feeding the card. Yes. Because the it's not just the format of the card, which obviously internally has, you know, chips in it, but it's also the CF card reader or the CF card connector. Yes. The uh, PCMI CIA bit on the other side that's in your camera. Yes. And so when we talk about like it's, Obviously, the the moment we want to make getting the fastest cards possible, but you can't just go and invent a brand new card because unless it can connect to that card reader, a writer inside your camera, it's not yeah. quite yeah. Yeah, look, we're just seeing, we're just seeing we're seeing very varied. It looks like we're seeing we it's not we've never once seen even with the super fast, absolutely serious hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of cards like serious hudman metals or the steels or whatever they are and, yep. and some serious don't fit in my, my 1050 time i think the fastest cf card is like 1050x whatever that really means uh we're still not seeing the full anyway it looks like you're topping out at the data rate of the card it only looks like it's able to write to that card as fast as that card can write, not as fast as the camera can write to that card. Does that make sense? It doesn't, look, it doesn't appear to be uh, at, at, at arm's length at the moment that the um, it's, it's, it's a limitation in the camera at this stage, it seems, that, 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 everyone's, that, that the bottleneck everyone's chasing at the moment is 
is the media. So we need to see someone hacksied up some sort of, you know, ribbon cable out the back going to some other kind of drive, and you know, who knows what what this what the what it, this camera is capable of when it's given a really big fat pipe to spit out through. Yeah, I just like that they're still using the Times CD-ROM speed yeah. as the <laughs> yeah. metric, like and it's so it's, it's, it's so great. The card, kilobytes per second. Yeah, it's and it's so it's such a con job about you know card rates and data rates and things, and you know they should they never quote they only they always write the this read this higher read read value. What was the when everyone really is concerned about? about. No, when you're sitting in your yeah, hotel on room. On Twitter the other day, you posted a maths question for me. What was that about? Oh, I was trying. Okay, because I was trying to work out. Because I've got my little pocket camera thing at the moment is the um, Samsung NX one thousand right. And I was trying yeah. to looking at I was looking at the video quality of that. And it's pretty ropey, and I was just trying to work. Did out. I get the right answer? Uh, yes, you did. Thank you. A few, uh, but it was interesting how fluid the answers were. There was a few different, <laughs> few different results, but it was all pretty poor. Like eighteen, sort of twelve to fifteen to eighteen megabits a second for the video rate for this camera. And because they knew the NX3300 is coming out at the moment, and I was sort of trying to work out what the new data rate of this camera is and have they improved it at all. Because it seriously could be a competitor. The the problem is that the, the lens mount isn't that popular, but they make some really nice little pancake glass, and it's a very... The camera itself is ter- is terrific, but it's being held back, at least for our industry, a little bit as a little rig cam, pocket cam. I'm not saying you go off and shoot a, a proper, you know, a, a whole film with it, but it's, you know, it's being held back to be able to be competitive, say, with Sony NEXs, uh, um, by its uh, crappy video data rate, because it'll shoot raw and everything in terms of stills, and it's, you know, it's it's very competitive image-wise. It's wonderful, but the video is crappy. Um, interesting though, about I think about 24 hours after I posted those questions, trying to work out what the data rates, and interesting, and it seems like they haven't improved the video data rate on their new cameras much at all either. Uh, I think they've since, I think it's the only cameras that have done it so far. They've posted uh, as an open source they are their the firmware for the NX, the new cameras. I think they've posted. Um, open source firmware for their cameras so hopefully someone might start hacking away and seeing if they can get better data rates out of them because the cameras are certainly as I say very capable and uh, the lenses are terrific and it's you know they've really spent some time um, developing a nice machine I just it's being hobbled again by the uh, by the software so I'm interested to see if, if anybody it's just a bit of a slightly smaller pool the NEX cameras have got a lot of traction because of the mounts. Are, there's a lot of mount adapters around. There's a lot of lenses you can get on them. There's a lot of, and because people have wanted to explore a very nice, quite a nice, quite a nice video image out of these things. Anyway, so that's that's what that was why my I was asking. Right, I can't uh, even remember what the rate. question was. I remember it was because it's a Super Thirty Five sensor, right? And it'll shoot, you know, and you can have manual control of exposure over video and. As I say, some nice little compact little pancake, fast, fast, fast glass. So, yeah. I, I've be. actually just found your thing. It was how much? It was 21.5 minutes. Right. Yes, how many they give those. Megabytes uh, 
second, I think it was. They give the they give the how much you know the terrible specs. They never give you the video data rate, but they'll say on a four megabyte, four gigabyte card or whatever how how much video on high quality HQ can you fit on your card. So it was just like kind of two working out backwards. Twenty one point five minutes. What's the megabit per second rate? Right. Yes, and I think the answer was twelve megabits a second. Oh, that's which what is I came interesting up with. because. All the clips I have of my camera, when you look at the data rate, when you play it on QuickTime and get info on it, you can. I'm getting about 18 megabits a second, which is still not not good. <laughs> For those keeping along at home, my rationale was a megabit is a million bits per second. 21.5 minutes was 1,290 seconds. Two gig is therefore gigabytes is obviously two times eight because it's bytes to bits. So 16 billion bits. So you divide 16 billion bits by the 1290 seconds and you get 12 megabits a second. I think that's how I did it. Right. Hey, um, Yes, real world is a bit higher than that, but uh, hey. Anyway. So I just want to get back to uh, workflow with uh, non-hacked cameras because it is a hack and it's it is proudly indeed. so. So it Canon's is. come out with this picture style that's a new preset um, for the uh, DSLRs. Yeah, I haven't tested this much yet, but I think it's it looking a little bit similar to, um, say, Technicolor or a ProLost uh, look for your picture style for... Uh, I'm trying to work out what cameras it's actually for. But um, I use proudly the um, Technicolor stuff. Right. And I do the Technicolor stuff because I believe they've got further up the Canon camera pipeline as a official Canon partner than anyone else has. So the Stu recommendations that you're referring to are just adjusting the back of the camera manually. Yes, it's very simple to make it less and doesn't dig down into the other settings that a picture style is capable of controlling of the camera. Yeah. Now, Technicolor does have a thing called Color Assist, and Color Assist is an app that will allow you to um, load up in your... Um, on your laptop, say, uh, and look at files and adjust the looks and apply a bunch of different styles and um, and tweak them. And in fact, that will go into the QuickTime movie um, definition of what's going on. I don't tend to use that. I have used it, but I don't tend to use it. Um, it's actually growing at the moment. They keep on releasing new versions of it and keep on sending me things. Color so. Assist is the software, right? Software, yeah. Yeah. So is that's not the the name of the pro? It's just called Technicolor Profile, right? Is it? What's the what's the name of the profile? The CineLook. CineLook. Yeah, but, um, yeah, I was talking about the software, the Color Assist. Yeah. So, so I don't tend to use the Color Assist um, uh, package. It doesn't let me do kind of enough stuff for what I want it to do. Plus, I'm really against, if there was a Seymour Axiom, I want I want my software in line with my workflow. I don't want to be going off to a branch to do something. Um, so what I do is I uh, use LutBuddy. So LutBuddy is a um, LUT. Uh, editing software that um, is actually free. It comes from the orphanage. Luckily, Magic Bullet adopted it and took it under their wing. Otherwise, they've been lost to the world. And LutBuddy is um, free, so you can download it. And LutBuddy lets me get a LUT, which I can then use in uh, Premiere. So um, it's sometimes, if you look at it, I think it's still called Magic Bullet LutBuddy, but um, it's available from uh, Red Giant, who we love. Mm-hmm. Um, so the thing about that is I've moved over hardcore to premiere so in premiere uh if you open up um effects you actually have the technicolor color assist now i don't use that because i'm using the lut that i generated um i actually open up uh, in my case magic bullet colorista and under that i've obviously got colorista but i've also got lut buddy if i then put lut buddy on a clip 
I can then go up and load the LUT um, and apply the LUT to uh, to LUT Buddy. So I actually leave the LUT on my desktop the entire time and just uh, import the LUT whenever I need it and use it all the time. It just produces a really nice uh, image, but because it's a LUT being applied in Premiere, I can get in underneath it if I need to, which is awesome. Okay. So, uh, yeah, it works really well. And I think it works with uh, FCPX and stuff like that as well. Speaking of FCPX... Um, <sighs> I'm, I'm going to swing back because I uh, yeah. keep on saying how much cool. I love Premiere. But yeah, you've been back in Final Cut Land. Yes, you? I gave it another go. Good and move. I'm sorry, no, not for me. Look, you know, again, I'm not not going to go into a big rant. But I think it it's very inflexible. I find it a very inflexible app. Others do like it, and that's terrific, fabulous. Uh, have enjoy that. Have fun. For me, I just found, even just the very first time you open up the whole thing and I just want to kind of like move some windows around. I don't want this little, I don't want this viewer here. I want to have this here. I don't want to have the effects window here. I want to have, because I work with two monitors and a lot of people do. This is designed, this is an app designed to just work with a big, a fuck off big iMac, like 27 inch iMac or something. And that should be all you need. Uh, I think. Part of the few updates since they originally launched it was to be able to ha- use multiple monitors, but they're very selective about what you can put on your other monitor and what you can't. Like, like look at Premiere, where you can undock and dock panels, and you can really customize your workspace. I think it's very important to feel like you are at home um, if you can customize where shit sits on your desktop, and Apple will not let you do that. It will let you, to a certain degree, put stuff over here. But seriously, the options of what you can put on second monitor and what you can't are very hobbled. And that's just the start of the annoyance. Uh, I just, I I find it very constraining, very, um, my first thing I wanted to do is just wanted to cut a montage. I just wanted to put some, you know, put some very simple uh, editing workflow. Let's have... Uh, one simple long constant music track music bed and shuffle stuff around i love the magnetic timelines and i'm there's a lot of stuff to like there but seriously you know just the ability to be able to just just sort of have have your timeline as this kind of palette of where you want to move stuff and even if you want to have a gap let me have a gap you know fucking i know you can switch off the magnetic timelines but um it's uh it's just it forces you to work its way, and I don't want to. Sorry. So I find that it has still got a long way to go for me, uh, and I think for a lot of people. You know, this is this. I'm not alone in this uh, dislike of the app. Unfortunately, I think it's definitely improved since 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 last time. But uh, just simply wanted to be able to sort of, cause I think editing is a very fluid, very kind of organic kind of process, particularly if you're cutting to music where you want to see how stuff works with beats and how, how things sort of flow emotionally and how the lyric in, is, in, gets interpreted by the images, depending on what image you put with what part of the lyric. And it feels like it's a very, it's a very sort of just want to drop something there and just leave it and then have another couple of clips clips and keep them down the end out of the way for a moment and just that's the way I'm sort of edited a little bit sort of messily I suppose and just kind of shuffle stuff around like a bit of a palette and just kind of like rearrange things on the desk a little bit and it's a very restricting way this works and it's very it's even though now still lets you 
much easier in the way it'll sort of let you split audio out and stuff. It's it's very restrictive in 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 how it lets you uh, leave gaps in things and and how it lets you layer video over the top of audio and then literally within five, I just abandoned it. I said I'm not getting anywhere and within five minutes of with Premiere, I I I just was able to get a complete cut happening and i just love with premiere the fact that you can just have multiple resolutions you can put clips on top of other clips and then take them away from on top of other clips you don't automatically have to render anything i can put a i can put quickly put a look over the top of something or a filter or a resize and i have to render every time just the ability to be able to just sort of have stuff overlap and move stuff around and just be a bit freer with things and very very quickly get an assembly up and running and i think that's what you know I think that's subconsciously what is frustrating is that really editing is about seeing the images in a row and getting an emotional feel from them and responding to that and changing it and very quickly adapting it. And uh, now I want to take that clip from back here and put it at the front. And I just feel that with Premiere, I can very easily get into that emotional space where I'm, I can I can start to get lost in the music and the images and ignore the process and I just can't me personally mentally for my style can't do that with Final Cut was good in non Final Cut 10 or non X yes when we had the proxy workflow for R3D files back in the day because that that was useful yeah but these days I take my R3Ds in the Premiere and edit them directly yeah drag exactly you don't need to worry about proxies drag and drop yeah and so that makes yeah. Premiere just kick ass. Did you consider Abbott? I mean, we're at 6.5, we're about to go to Composer 7. Yeah, look, I just, it's, um, I've never quite got the Avid thing, and I think it's very it's good and flexible, and obviously it's, it can't be faulted in terms of its, its, its establishment in the industry. Uh, for me, I think when I've originally started looking at, um, at Avid, it was sort of in the handover days when they started to get they were, they were still very very linked to their own proprietary stuff, their own proprietary in and out cards. Their own, it wouldn't work with it wouldn't work with the uh, Blackmagic cards I had. It wouldn't play nice with other things, and and it was very. I'm sure it's improved, and I now know that there's lots of things it will work with. But I think when I last considered it, and at that point of go no go, it was still very much tied to its own proprietary stuff and I'd seen a lot of pain with a lot of editor friends where you know it was completely tied to you must buy this $20,000 you know avid avid interface box and if this card dies we won't repair it but we will offer you a new card of new technology at you know half price that only say $10,000 so it was very it was kind yeah. of like that sort of silicon graphics kind of <laughs> tying you to your, their own proprietary stuff, which kind of was I mean, the bit of been... the the bit of the death of uh, uh, not the death, but the be- a slow, sort of it's safe to say uh, at the moment there's a bit of a slippery slope with Avid, and um, people are very much experiencing quite a buggy, um, a, a buggy experience. Well, seven isn't out yet, but seven uh, uh, six point five. Sorry, um, once you get to the sixty four bit type stuff. <laughs> does do you full um, direct access of the R3D files as it does, you know, full native access of HDCAM SR files and XDCAM and a bunch of other P2 files for that matter. But my problem was uh, initially the um, DNxHD 
because I just, you know, wanted to do a bunch of stuff ProRes. That's all been solved because mm. you've now got full direct access to um, ProRes and stuff. And yeah. All the direct editing of those in Avid. My problem now is completely different. My problem now is I'm a Mac guy. If I want to do serious editing, I'm going to need serious grunt. And I just am so lost on there being no towers. Yeah. And the the holy grail for me is what's being offered by Adobe Anywhere because now I can actually, with the new, and this has all been announced but not shipping yet, I can now have the processing power in the back room and just use a laptop on my desk and edit away happily with all of the power that I get from quadro cards and multi-node um, you know, rendering. Mm. Don't have to move over to PC. It's all just on my laptop. And if I you know, move rooms or whatever, I don't have to lug around uh, Thunderbolt drives and, and everything else. It's all on the server. It's all handled by our data management and it would be you know, just a, a joy to use. So... If there was an opportunity to have a tower um, and a new tower was really kick-ass and had quadro cards and stuff in it, well, then that evens the playing field a bit. But I don't know. Premiere just seems to be good now, good next generation as well. Which, yeah. You know. Yeah, next generation is uh, definitely looking like it's much is improved. It's not a massive leap, as is Abbott in my book, as is Adobe's way. They don't sort of have these huge reinvent you don't think the wheel. Um, anywhere's a huge leap. Is anyone doing a huge leap? No, you don't think anywhere is not a huge leap. The Adobe Anywhere model. Well, I think that's unbelievably a huge leap. I think leap. Hello, in my review mirror, I just made it. Yeah. Well, speaking from someone who hasn't used it, uh, I can only just imagine. I'm I'm going to be wary of it because I just know there will be that one time. Where I've got the dodgy net from a, you know, a hotel, hotel internet or trade show or so, something will go down and there'll be I'll be it'll be that one time where I can't access what I want when I need it and that'll be the one freaking time when it's oh my god quick deadline we must have this revision on, right that's now a, that's a set I mean with and respect, I'm gonna and I'm gonna want to throw the computer under a bus and I'm but, never gonna want to do it again you know what I mean. But hang on, wait, wait, wait. If wait. it works for ninety percent of the time, terrific. But it's that one, that one ten percent, or that no, ninety-nine and one percent. I'm sorry, Jace, but you're saying that a hundred percent of the time you have with you all the files that you need when you're traveling, because for the one time I'm in Las Vegas and I have those files back in Sydney, and I don't have the files with me, I'm going to throw my computer under bus. Would be the equivalent discussion point mm. because for ninety percent of the time. Um, I understand your theory, and then there's 10% where it doesn't work, and that gets you frustrated. But the alternative is lugging a huge amount of data with you as you travel, because yeah. the alternative is you have to have everything with you all the time. Yeah, I know. I'm more and more increasingly getting relying on, or 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 know subconsciously, I have in the back of my mind, I have the safety net of Dropbox and its ability to share files, and know that I'll always have things with me. Um, but that is always syncing locally, though, you know. So I'm, I'm, I'm relying on the cloud to sort of make everything up to date, but I do know that it's always so making sure you, what I have with me is always with me, and if I don't have the net, then I know I'm up to date. So but, there's two things. Firstly, it isn't actually designed for the remote access anywhere in the world yet. Right. Like the idea the, of the, that... Then, the, yeah, the, 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 obviously my, the perception is starts with the name. So, sorry, if I, <laughs> if, I, if I get the wrong end of the stick. No, in fact... Uh, so, what is it really designed to do? Designed to... It's designed to work in like an office like I've got here. Yeah. Where 
you would have people editing off the same streams and and the same server, but you're in the same building. And and it's designed for that at 1.0. Like they've said, the model that you're talking about, the, you know, you can be anywhere in the world and use it model, yeah. that has to solve a couple of other things, not least of all latency. Yeah. And so that's not sort of, so they're not more promoting for it for that. Stuff. Yeah, they're not promoting what you just described. So version. where's the grunting happening then? Where's the processing grunt? Where, where's if if I normally say need to have a reasonable graphics card or a little bit of graphics card to accelerate stuff? Is it is the acceleration is happening elsewhere, or it's just or the whole software is completely rewritten this, so it's it, it doesn't it needs less acceleration in the first place? No, this model has me setting up in the equipment room or some place a central computer, which is the computer that has all of your files, all right. of your storage, you do all your archiving and backing up from that. Yep. It has a database that manages your assets. It has your assets and it has the graphics card and the render nodes. And what you get at your desk, whether that desk be next to that computer or on the other side of the room or on the other side of the building, you get basically real-time editing. But all the processing is happening back at the grunt machine so it's really like kvm it's like a it's like a hub and spoke model yeah but what's it's okay. what it's feeding out now the the idea of being able to use it anywhere in the world well yeah you could try and theoretically it would work but it's not what adobe's pushing for release 1.0 i think they're going to go that way that's definitely the writing on the wall so i could have all my media of course on say mac pro in my office and then i could be doing editing the same project on premiere sitting on the couch while i'm watching modern family Yes, though you'd probably have a PC, not a tower, because you want to have all the advantages of cheap hardware, high grunt, quadro cards, no restrictions. But if I've already got the Mac Pro with, say, you know, whatever, a, a, a quadro 4000 in it, and um, all the storage and all the rating and stuff all there, it's, it's set up, you could then have the same... I could be sitting here in the pod here at your place and have access to my files and media um, on my laptop here. I could tweak and edit as long as my machine at home was on. The network, yeah. Uh, actually, the, I don't think your tower is going to be spec'd as a approved right. level of hardware because it's okay. so old. Um, <laughs> but if you had... Not my fault. <laughs> well, exactly. I know. But totally. yes. Um, yeah, yeah, right. So for, for certain... Yes, it has to be a spec'd... High-end, new-ish, um, a, a new PC tower to be the node, to be the uh, the hub. hub. And then the spokes can be, whatever at, you know, MacBook Airs. Yeah. And you can happily edit away doing tons of R3D file and okay. compositing. So I've been doing, you know, I've seen demos. I've, you know, they've announced this stuff, right? Yeah. Is there anything sort of incredibly crazy as part of that chain that you need to have or any sort of amazing it's purely having a, a reasonably high spec pc and the correct software or is there some sort of magic black box that's that's part of this thing do we do no there's no proprietary special thing that i know of that okay. adobe sells that is some weird thing or you have to have the whole thing running on you know thousand dollar glass or copper or gold cables or something running out the back. So what's the, I mean, the current, the, the, the precursor to that then is just you need a really fast, is that every, you can have your media on a, because mo most things like say, whatever, be it Avid or Premiere, they'll have a, a way to have shared media 
uh, whether across four or five yeah, workstations, but, not, but every workstation has to have the grunty box in yeah, it. Yeah, because every workstation would be doing, in this case, the keying or the colour grading or whatever. Yeah. Whereas the composited, keyed, colour graded R3D files that are going into your comp are all happening out in the equipment room. And yeah. at your laptop, it looks like you're doing that work. It feels like you're doing that work. But in fact, at your laptop, it isn't being processed there. Yeah. So each each time somebody joins your company, you want to get some freelance editors in, just hand them out you know, a bunch of MacBook Airs and they can punch as hard as they can punch. So, so what's the, the golden, what's the silver bullet that, that Adobe have come up with here? They've just m- optimized their software to work. Well, it's the Mercury... Yeah, optimize the Mercury side of things to work. The Mercury engine in the equipment room. But the second thing is, if let's say you get a Premiere window up right now, and I said this isn't released, right? So I'm just talking off what I know, but you know, may change by the time it's released. So I've got a R3D up here on my laptop at the moment. It's going to be what a quarter of the screen, you know, probably for menus for the timeline and for a bunch of stuff. Maybe a third of the screen is Mm -hmm. just going to be what I'm doing. So it does the R3D conversion does the compositing but all it's streaming out to me is to update that corner window which might be a third of 1920 by 1080 kind of res yeah that's all that's coming out to your computer it's not streaming the four layers in hd that you're then going to composite over each other streaming the result it's streaming the result so you've got only like say i'm going to use arbitrary numbers you know 900 by 600 pixels getting to get updated but after they've been comped, after they've been color corrected, after they've been processed, so it's just you got it's a very low latency KVM switcher kind of thing where you can have you know you basically you're literally almost having almost having keyboard and mouse kind of thing in a room in a almost in a except way. For if you were doing that a computer, if you're doing a remote desktop login you yeah. would have to update the whole screen because it just doesn't understand what's on the screen it just yeah. says that is a whole screen I'll just give you the screen yeah right this just gives you a corner of it. Um, and the editing and stuff that you're doing on it is running very, very quickly because of the Mercury engine. So in each room, say you've got, say you next to your Premiere editing suite, say, you've got a uh, OLED monitor for client. Yep. That, where's that, that, that's getting it, that's still getting it from, you need a graphics card in that, any particular computer to run it. So your question is, if I want to have a... If you've got the central mega hub in another room... I will find room, out the answer to that question for okay. you. Okay. If in each client room, say... Yeah, no, it's a good question. I'll answer that question for you. Hmm. Okay. Excellent. Don't know. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's one other bit of um, the equation we kind of skipped over, but I want to just circle back if we can in terms of workstation uh, workflow for this week, which is we didn't really discuss um, Bulletproof very much. And four workflows that uh, we've been talking about, like especially one of the Canon workflows, um, I've moved over to using uh, this as a method of basically ingesting my movies because I ingest my stills into Lightroom but don't want to put my movies into Lightroom because I can't do anything with them in Lightroom and it clogs up my Lightroom yeah, um, that's right. catalog. Indeed it does. Have you had a look at uh, Bulletproof by Magic Bullet? Yep, yep. I've been uh, uh, testing the beta. Yep, it's uh, excellent. It's. Uh, I'm sure it's not too far away because it's. Um, seems very, uh, very competent. Um, it's very clever. I mean, it's really. It's like it's grind as they call it in their own words. It's grinder on steroids. This is. Um, 
obviously helping you back up and organize things, but, you know, helping you put a bit of a, apply a bit of a look and transcode it through to whatever your uh, editing, uh, particular editing platform requires. That's right, right, Mike? Yeah, I mean, you can um, apply, uh, adjust metadata on import, adjust color presets on import, back stuff up while you're going and catalog your film clips, as it were, um, so there's an organized component. There's also a review component, so you can just sort of review stuff back. Yeah. And then um, you yeah. can rate things and add to the metadata, like, you know, this is a five-star clip and this has got this or that talent in it or whatever. Um, and, in fact, you can export as well. I think the thing about Grindr um, is I had it much more in my head that that was a transcoding tool, Yeah. less of an organizational tool. Yeah, I guess it's not helping you so much with the backup. It's purely transcode. Yeah. Really take a file, cull it, transcode it, and yeah, it's up to you how you handle the originals. But this will do this do that for you as well. Well, you can you can decide very much like that Lightroom um, sort of workflow a little bit. You can decide what you do with things, how you import things, and um, how you back things up. Yeah. Yeah. And and I've got to say, it's pretty schmick. It's also yeah. pretty nice in terms of its. UI, I mean, the sliding window um, kind of UI gets a lot of menus in there pretty pretty fast. Yes, and it, along the way has a sort of a uh, simple mode and a complex mode, switchable between sort of more, 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 more options, less options, depending on which part of the workflow you want the more control of. So yeah, no, it's 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 very nice. It's well it's well set up. Um, I think it's got yeah. You know, there's a few little things that've been lo- lovely to 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 have and. Um, yeah, I mean, I love having Colorista three ways in there and curves yeah. and and um, and LUTs, obviously. Because yeah, wow, that's what I'm. Yeah, look, it's very workable as it is, and it will it will improve shortly through the the beta process. I'm not sure what the timeline for it to be out of beta and fully released is, but can't be that far off because it's uh, looking uh, very polished as is, and um, uh, and it, uh, there's a good. Um, uh, you know, collaboration between beta testers, and it's uh, yeah, it's coming along. So one of the things we mentioned before is that you can shoot Cine style. Um, well, this supports Cine style, but it also interestingly, you said you shoot ProLost for that, which is yeah, very well. Those simple. those are also presets. So you've got right presets of going from ProLost flat to cool, warm, or mojo, but you can also do Cine style to cool or warm, or or for that matter, to standard as you can with uh, ProLost. Uh, or a punchier look or a standard look, um, which I think is all uh, really nice having that sort of built in and uh, able to be applied. So there's a, there is more to it than it first appears. Um, it's worth having a, a play with it. I don't actually... I think it's free, isn't it, the beta at the moment? Yes, it is. Yeah. It is. You can sign up on um, at redgiant.com and... Uh, I think even on the front front page, you'll, you can invite you to join the public beta, uh, redgiant.com slash product slash all slash bulletproof. And, uh, yes, sign on up. It's, uh, yeah, no, it's, 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 it's very good. It's, it's, as I say, it's force, not forces you, but it, um, kind of directs you down the right path of let's deal with, before we change any of this stuff, let's deal with the backups. Let's, what do we want to back up? How do we want to back it up? And then let's talk about organizing it and, uh, you know, deleting stuff or trimming clips we don't need. And, uh, yeah, then you just say put the um, put looks on if required. Um, yeah, so I think that pretty much covers the workflow things we want to discuss. We haven't got into um, 
sort of workflow that might be actually color grading and uh, and finaling the work um, post uh, edit or visual effects type stuff, obviously. But um, I guess my question to you was just in summary. I've been talking about the things that I use. So I use um, the LUTs and uh, Premiere and and uh, Bulletproof. I'm just wondering, and for the R3Ds, obviously, I am um, doing that in Premiere as well. Yeah. What is your kind of workflow? I think you mentioned you're cutting on Premiere because you love that for that fluidity and well, I've got very much forked sort of workflow I suppose depending on whether I'm doing stuff for me or stuff for other people generally if I'm doing stuff for other people it will be workflow will be handled by post people it'll be it'll go it'll be transcoded directly within Avid I'm pretty sure you can do the sort of drag and drop from um, uh, R3Ds through to the DNX HD of your choice and that's sort of more of an overnight process i think within avid and then we you can edit the avid the r3d files but in the same way that you would in premiere in avid but i don't think people tend to in sydney no generally sort of generally generally cross-port it to um dnx hd and cut on those and then out you know spit out xml or whatever and then you'll go in and we'll be in resolve in a full resolve suite editing on the camera original R3Ds based on, you know, an EDL and straight out through to um, Flame or so. Uh, For me at home, if I'm shooting Epic, I will probably um, just immediately just put everything in Red Cine X, apply a bit of a look that puts it in the right zone for me and then export it probably out to ProRes via um, Red Cine X and cut in Premiere and never see the R3Ds again. Obviously, archive them off, but I will never touch them. What, what are you grading in? I would be then... And then I'll be in, into going into Premiere, and I would probably grade in Magic Bullet. Right. Magic Bullet within Premiere. Uh, specific stuff, if I've really got to dig deeper, I've got a real troublesome clip, I will do that through Resolve. But... You know, to be honest, I don't touch Resolve personally that often, even though I own a copy, just because it's a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of a, I've, just the way I work, I'm sort of, you know, not terribly disciplined about um, we, know, we great correct workflows. So getting it in and out of Resolve is a bit of a, you know, it's, right. a, it, it's, it's a, little bit, a little bit of a bore. And I would generally just do one shot at a time if it's troublesome, directly drop it into Resolve and then export a ProRes and drop that back into my edit and Premiere. But um, so I do look forward to Premiere 10, uh, to Resolve 10 and seeing what how um, the whole sort of import, edit, Resolve, export, uh, coloring workflow will happen with that on staying on within one, within one app but generally i will be regardless if it's 5d or um epic i'll stick with within premiere use magic bullet looks and export whatever i need generally more for sort of vimeo or for the real just export big fat old prores generally 1080 just working 1080 all the time um obviously keeping the camera originals but very quickly get out of those into ProRes, cut in, cut in Premiere. Uh, even even with the reds, I think I still probably just export. Although I think when I just did this recent montage, I had a whole bunch of stuff. I had camera original 5D. I had camera original Epic stuff. I had ProRes exports from from onlines. I had I had 
masters, you know, almost standard def masters from 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 my archives of older jobs, and yeah, it was just a big old mashup of resolutions and formats, and again, that's what I kind of liked about it that it was I could shuffle all the stuff around, and I wasn't rendering in every five minutes, and um, but yeah, generally just bold export to ProRes, and you know, just maybe even just maybe just forty two. HQ or just regular four two twos and 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 stick that way. That's more more than good enough for most of sort of pre- generally the the final result is probably Vimeo or presentation on the iPad or up to or putting on the website etc. Which again is probably going through Vimeo anyway. Mm. So yeah, that's sort of that's kind of mine. Generally, still sticking with 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 Magic Bullet within within Premiere. It's a very capable combination, I think. And uh, I do kind of like it's kind of generally because the stuff I'm dealing with has almost had sometimes had a bit of a grade already on it, and I'm just kind of tweaking it a bit, or just adding a little bit of a layer, or just just helping make it, adjusting it with an edit to make it you know smoother, sometimes smoother cut if something's a bit too jarring. But generally, it's stuff's had a little bit of a look applied to it by the time I'm putting it in. But I love still love Magic Bullet. It's terrific, terrific thing. I would love the ability within it to scrub because it's kind of like it it where whatever frame you're on you're almost you're only grading on frames mm-hmm. it seems from memory i think you just you know you park it on whatever frame and then when you enter magic bullet you're only grading on that it's it's impossible to really to do it's very hard to do within magic bullet to do dynamics and to do you can't do tracking and all that sort of stuff that you can with Resolve. So it's a very simple one light kind of pass thing, although you can still do vignettes and things. But I, 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 I love it for its simplicity where I do not have to pop out of Premiere in a way. I don't have to leave the app. I can do it within the app. So, yeah, that's that's the, I think that's what I like about it, the simplicity of just drag and drop, stay with one app, and don't have to leave it until I want to walk away with something I export. Well, um, time now to move to our red room. I think yes. So uh, in the red room, we like to have uh, filmmakers and uh, people that are producing amazing gear and and cool stuff. But I don't think we've ever had uh, such an interesting um, left of field uh, red room attendee as we have today. Jace, do you want to set this up for us? <laughs> this is a little bit left field, but lovingly so. I think um, although this is a fairly lengthy interview but stick with it because it's not i think it's an interesting conversation on light and 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 uh, not maybe not physics but just the mechanics of lenses and and i think it's a lovely an interesting conversation on bespoke the bespoke style i guess and the, so i'm talking to richard gale from dog shit optics and this is um I guess it's brought to my attention by readers, by listeners of the show, and indeed uh, one of uh, Richard's um, cohorts at Dogshit Optics, uh, Hans Punk, is actually a fan and listener of the podcast, so uh, he was definitely pushing uh, Richard to uh, <laughs> keep in touch and do the interview. And uh, but it's, it, I think it was, it's a great, interesting conversation on the bespoke sort of um, nature of this uh, lens crafting that that Dogshit's doing. Basically, they're taking, as Richard will explain, they're taking old Russian glass and modifying it 
um, to add a bit of character, which is as we've talked a few times on this show, Mike, about sort of character being slowly removed from things and how nice it is to give yourself, give your footage a little bit of a different look to anybody else's, inject a bit of character uh, important, and I'm sure we touched on this in the interview that we are that this is not about giving your footage a bullshit Instagram look. This is about um, sort of stripping away the layers of perfection of the lens. And he openly know that we actually he is ruining the lenses essentially, but not to the extent of uh, taking away sharpness. It's about letting some letting light play around and muck around with your image a little bit and enhancing flares and, and the tints. And yes, it's definitely ruining the, the glass forever, but in, in a good way. Um, <laughs> and, I think uh, ruining is a strong word. Well, yeah. Okay, Liberating. I guess. Um, let it, oh, letting the uh, lens be more open to... Um, um, stray photons and yeah. creating a little bit of um, art through through deconstruction, perhaps. It's certainly the look, isn't it? I mean, right now it the, is. It is. It is a bit. Uh, you know, obviously, it's not something that's going to. Uh, it's not going to change your script. It's not going to make the uh, your imagery, your 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 words on the page any more amazing. It's not going to you know rewrite your film for you. But I think that there is a certain emotion to be had. In, there is definitely an emotional subconsciousness to. Um, I think it's a reaction to the perfect packaged, um, yeah, you know, plastic. I think if it adds rawness, if it adds realness, if it adds a layer of not putting in post yep. reality and not bullshit flares and not. Um, not that just let's take a perfect set of Cook S4s and a perfect Alexa and then let's give it a boring old log look because we're trying to make our TVC look real and gritty and honest and we're not trying to bullshit you about our hair cream or whatever the fuck we're trying to sell you. We're not trying to, you know, even if this is an ad or whatever it is, we're not trying to, you know, we're trying to make it more believable. So we'll put a boring just linear log, sort of freaking dull, just lift the blacks and... um, make it uh, look real that way. I think that there's a lot to be said for putting that organics in from the very beginning, from the from the front element on. And uh yeah, and I think as I say it's 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 an interesting conversation on making and not in, in making it bespoke. Okay, well let's cut now to your interview with Richard uh, Gale and uh hear from the guys themselves. You are entering the Red Room. Okay, well, let's, let's start with the philosophy of the whole reason you got started and why you run it this way. Well, I mean, the main thing, it originally um, started out as just a, a kind of project for myself and um, a friend of mine who, um, you know, we're kind of anamorphic lens fiends. Uh, we scour the internet for kind of lenses that, that you know you kind of hope no one else has got um and yeah just kind of um a friend of mine bought a a broken lens which i fixed for him and um i wanted that look and i couldn't find another one of those lenses to kind of turn my, my setup into you know able to shoot what what he was able to shoot on something that i'd lovingly fixed so yeah it was just kind of trying to replicate that originally so are you like a super analog, only play vinyl at home, drive a Jensen Inceptor kind of guy? Yeah, I think so. Like, I mean, I'm um, 
you know, to be honest, I I haven't bought any music since vinyl sort of stopped. You know, I I kind of it's it's sad really because I I'm listening to music on YouTube, you know, and it's kind of like well, it's ninety six kilobytes a second or something silly like that, and and you're just like now now um, it's more the visuals than the sound. Um, but yeah, I I always used to. I, I love vinyl. I love the um, the crackle. I love the way that I don't know. It just uh, it, it's it's a physical. Even if it was a digital record, uh, you know, recorded in the digital domain, um, once it's been cut to vinyl, it's it's in the physical domain. And yeah, definitely. That's uh, I think I've gone off uh, <laughs> off track. I've no with that. It's okay. That's what we do. Sorry, mate. So. Well, speaking of imperfections and crackles and pops and scratches, let's talk about the ordering method because this is not an off-the-shelf product kind of company, is it? No, it's um, it's it's not really a commercial one either. You know, it's or it, it was never kind of meant to be that, um, and it just so happens people want them. And you know, um, there was a, a kind of space within my schedule, and I, um, you know, I just thought, yeah, let's let's offer them. Um, originally on an etsy shop and um you know they sold i think i put like 40 up um uh, thinking that there'd be like one one sale a week something like that you know um i had the stock of the lenses and um yeah but then it went nuts and and now kind of um we've kind of put together like a very simple method where you know people can email us and say you know please put me on the waiting list and, um, you know, and then hopefully within about uh, a month to two months, we're kind of hoping to get through everything. Say if you put an order in now or an email in now to us, we get back within at least or at the longest two months and then say, yeah, we can take your order. Let let me know what sort of look you're looking for or or look through the options list, which is a bit confusing. Um, you know. <laughs> well, well, let's deconfuse that. Let's go through the options list. Um, talk us through. Let's start with um, first of all the donor lens. There's only one particular lens we're talking about at the moment, but you have a few options with that. Yeah, well, at the moment it's a 58 mil. It's an old Russian lens, um, or it's an old uh, German-designed Zeiss lens uh, from the uh, the 40s. Um, and after the war, maybe even the 30s, but after the war, um, I believe the the former USSR took over those um, designs and, and kind of put them into production. So it's a very um, kind of widespread lens that was available on these kind of USSR um, SLRs, which were a lot cheaper than, say, you know, the, the more expensive Japanese and, and German uh, cameras. So, yeah, in effect, we're modifying lenses. We're taking a donor um, and um, pretty much ruining it and, and kind of, you know, ruining everything that is traditional about, like, you know, how, how a lens should be. Um, we're kind of taking that and, and removing it, really, and, and kind of damaging it optically, and repackaging it in a nice kind of clean and tidy uh, exterior. If now, you know I just want I mean. to get you to qualify a little bit there because we're still at the heart of it after a, a sharp image because you make it sound like you're like literally just taking them out into the driveway and, and driving them over with the car. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> chucking them in a river. No, I mean, it's, it's a very kind of uh, careful process. It's a very uh, methodical process. I mean, it took... 
uh, many hundreds of hours of um, lovingly playing with um, many, many of these lenses um, just to kind of work out what does what. Um, and, and in effect, the lens itself is a superb lens. I mean, you you, could, you put it on a, a Red Epic or, you know, shoot 5K. It's, it's designed for full frame still photography. Uh, you put it on a 5D Mark III as a standard lens before we've done anything. And it's, you know, Zeiss sharp and even at uh, wide open, it's superb. But it's got an old character about it. And it's the way they're made. Um, n not what or well, no one lens is exactly the same, even when they came out of the factory, because, you know, it just it wasn't quite um, as methodical as, say, modern Zeiss uh, production. So so with the one lens, you have a few options just in terms of the physics of it, like with with apertures and um, uh, bokeh. Yeah, well, in effect, uh, and we we can supply the lens with either the existing aperture, which is an f2 to f16. Um, it's eight blades, um, lovely kind of curved shape to them. So pretty much it's always a circular aperture, no matter what f-stop you're, you're kind of set at. Um, and it, it's also a fluid um, or a kind of clickless as standard, which is just an amazing base. Um, th then we do um, overlays. So we'll, we'll take out the existing aperture and um, put put laser cut overlays um, in in kind of various different shapes. So, for example, the oval aperture in in different um, aspect or different ratios of oval to replicate anamorphic, for example. And um, you know, it, it gives you a lot more of a physical, um, convincing look than, say, just cropping standard footage uh, and maybe overlaying horizontal flares, uh, because you've actually got that physical, um, you know, bokeh. Uh, I'm trying to think of a word. You know, um, yeah. just over overlaid out of focus highlights. Exactly. It's a deformed bokeh that you just can't. There's no um, digital process that allows you to create that in real time, you know, on a moving. Even if you could, you'd have to kind of modify each individual frame to, um, you know, for example, it, it would be easy to kind of create the ovals in, say, lights in a dark scene in the distance. But if, if you were to, say, shoot in the daylight, that the way an oval aperture or an anamorphic lens, for example, um, kind of modifies the background defocus, you just can't replicate it. So it, with that option, the, the oval bokeh, what's the aperture that you're in? I mean, is you losing much light? Is it, does it feel still feel like it's a, a wide open lens? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, an f2.8 on a 58 mil on, you know, even a super 35 sensor, it really is. I mean, you know, you probably want to stop down to f4 for a kind of medium shot just because it is still very shallow because it's obviously it's slightly longer than a 50. Um, but, um, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely very shallow. And, you know, when you put it on a larger, you know, say, for example, a full frame, you know, 5D, obviously, it's a little bit mushy. Um, you know, it's not as sharp as, say, a, a proper cinema camera. But, you know, I, I don't think sharpness is, is everything. And, yeah. uh, you know, the full frame look. We, we got a guy in um, Tokyo, a friend of mine, 
who's gone out with a lens uh, to test and he's going to a few destinations um, that were used um, in Lost in Translation. So I've um, kind of created a lens for him that is hopefully going to replicate the Lost in Translation look. Um, only only in the um, the anamorphic oval aperture so hopefully we'll trump the uh the beauty obviously we haven't got scarlett johansson no that did help yes uh okay so then there's a triangle like the old um, zeiss three blade lenses and a fixed aperture Yes. Uh, so obviously, yeah, the, the triangle works in the same way the uh, the oval does. We, we put an overlay. Now, the the extra large aperture, which is we call the quasi 1.5, as opposed to uh, a true 1.5 aperture. In effect, we are um, it, increasing the size of the aperture. Um, but but you've got to bear in mind that the actual optical elements aren't designed to um, kind of absorb on their actual proper uh, polished face. So you turn an f2 lens into an f1.5? Well, no. In effect, if if you were to shoot a dimly lit scene with either the f2 or our f1.5, you don't gain any light, but you get almost, uh, well, it's not almost, it's, it's a shadow lift. So any ambient light that may be around will absorb into uh, parts of the optics w- that would normally be blocked by the existing aperture. So, so in effect, you get a perception of uh, a better exposure when really it's, it's literally um, doing a shadow lift um, in camera or in optic. Uh, so you, it, it naturally gives you a very uh, milky look, this 1.5. Um, and, and that was mainly designed or mainly developed to be used with anamorphic lenses, um, modern lenses that, that tend to kind of, especially the projection ones, they're very contrasty and they've got some amazing coatings on there that just kill every bit of kind of, um, you know, physicality because they're designed for projecting uh, and you don't want any um, negative mm-hmm negative uh, optical uh, artifacts there but the moment you put one of them on say a very very low contrast taking lens um, say for example the ff58 uh, or flare factory 58 with with a quasi 1.5 in effect the, the kind of ultra low contrast works really well because it uh, it absorbs everything that, that the anamorphic lens has has kind of um, is feeding it so tinted flares, there's a few options there. How does that work by giving you a tinted flare but not a tinted lens? Well, in effect, instead of, um, say, applying a very kind of uh, obvious cast over the, over the image uh, like a filter would, um, in effect, we're, we're putting um, pigment onto parts of the optics that, that aren't normally um, subjected to exposure. Um, and uh, in effect... It's only when the lens is pulled with light in, in, say, for example, a flared or an overexposed situation that you end up um, kind of activating these these tints. So in effect, you're, you're shooting with a lens that that um, looks normal in, in most situations. And then occasionally, if you get a bit of light that kind of just just gets into the lens because they're so reactive to the light with, you know, what we do, I mean, polishing the front bevel. 
you know, the moment any kind of um, strong light, like a dynamic light change happens, you end up getting these artifacts and these kind of um, glowing parts of your image that are very reactive to the light and, and very kind of, um, you know, they, they are subtle. I mean, some some of the tints that we do, like the purple, is just absolutely crazy because it's it's a very natural color um so if, if you wanted that sort of stylized um crazy look then you know the purple is good but you know say for example i mean you you've seen some videos of um you know tests of the blue for example now you know when when you say for example if you were shooting um a kind of very warm looking scene on a beach um at, at sunset you could in effect, you, you end up um, with a situation where you're getting blue, very kind of cold and uh, maybe not cold, very cool and clean um, kind of artifacts coming through when a lot of the, the kind of image is very warm. Even if, even if you were to dial in, um, if you're using kind of non-raw, dial in a white balance to, to kind of bake in a nice warm look, like a stylized warm look the moment that lens the blue tint starts to activate on certain situations it's like whoa where did that blue come from and it it's just um it's just another dimension and because it's so reactive as in you know it's it's not um being done in the digital domain it's it's happening unplanned um and and it just kind of uh I don't know. It, a lot of people may may think that the kind of uh, tints are a little bit of a kind of gimmick and, and maybe kind of pigeonhole you into a certain look. Um, so, I mean, we offer the lens in a, um, a non-tinted version. And it, in effect, this works in the same way. But instead of when those areas are, are kind of pulled with light, instead of it glowing the colour, the tint, it glows the colour of the, the light source. So contrast level, the options are low, lower, and stupid. Now low, the samples I've seen, even those are fairly low contrast. Explain why we even want lower and stupid and why this is a good thing. You know, mainly the, the stupid low contrast was developed for use with the anamorphic lenses again, the anamorphic right. attachments, uh, just because obviously they act as a hood almost and, and kind of obviously you haven't got that direct um, light hitting, say, the polished bevel. They take away some of the low contrast that you put in there So by putting the hood over the front, so you need to build that in. Yeah, definitely. And and also, you, you know, the, the low contrast also absorbs. The lower the contrast you go, the more it absorbs the ambient um, light and, and the more, um, for example, the, the tints show up. So, you know, if, if you went stupid low contrast and blue, um, but in effect, the, the blue will be a lot more prominent on a stupid low contrast lens. Normally, if someone says, I want a stupid low, I'll, I'll get in touch and just kind of warn them how, how low it is, because, you know, it really is silly. It's, um, you know, it's kind of almost unusable on 99% of situations. Right, but, but it has its uses, yes. Oh, definitely. I mean, if you were shooting, say, um, a kind of a Kubrick-style candlelit scene and you wanted to kind of create an in-lens sort of look, um, a stupid low-contrast lens will absorb 
a lot of light um, from from candlelight that may be just out of shot or maybe not kind of part of the the frame and and give you like a contrast lift that is kind of almost a bit like a sort of a smoke um, and then haze within a mm-hmm. within a shot you know and also i mean you could use a stupid contrast lens um shooting sort of dry for wet that would be another situation uh, you know because in effect if you were to shoot a dry for wet uh, scene with a bit of smoke and um some you know blue lights and everything and, and kind of and a very kind of um uncontrasty lighting design the moment you use the lens as well, you get the same effect as you get when you're shooting through water. Yeah, so it's adding some ambience, but it's actually taking that ambience from surrounding light. It's not just putting it in there for, for fun. Yeah, I mean, the lower the contrast you choose, the more responsive it is to the ambient um, light. So, And, and the more you lose um, shadow detail. So you kind of, you know, it's ideally in the, ideal world it'd be good if we had enough people to make five lenses for each person that bought one because you yes. know but go to number three no 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 it's not <laughs> yeah. strong enough go to number four yeah yeah we, we need to take the shit level up to five <laughs> <laughs> exactly i think you'd have to come up with some sort of shit warp factor for that okay let's talk about cleaning marks and the glow and things like that mechanical sort of artifacts yeah, well, the cleaning marks are something that I, um, you know, that's that's one of my favourite um, kind of things that, that we kind of apply to the lenses um, that, that so many people disregard and because they're used to seeing, um, you know, adverts on eBay saying, you know, no cleaning marks or loads of cleaning marks. So, you know, the lenses with cleaning marks tend to go cheap on eBay. Um, and, and 90% of the time, the cleaning marks on, on the elements, on the outside elements, aren't making much of a difference to the image at all. But what we do, we're, we're applying cleaning marks to the internal elements that would normally kind of not, not see right. contact from, say, a, a jumper on a laser, you know, when you can't be bothered to get the, the lens cloth out, you know, when the jumper comes out and, you know, there's a bit of kind of grit in the jumper but in effect what what happens when you start to apply um, texture or um, kind of cleaning marks to some of those elements on the inside they they're very uh, reactive to light and you end up um, getting texture on some of the the kind of orbs that you get in flaring situations Mm. so in effect um, if you had a very brightly lit scene and you shot uh, and a bright light in shot normally with a normal lens you won't really see much of the the kind of uh, the orbs if you wanted that look you know um uh, if you wanted a flare to be visible for a uh, aesthetic point but with, with say uh, a cleaning mark version of the um flare factory 58 obviously cleaning marks lower the contrast again but you you gain texture to those orbs and the orbs end up glowing the same color as whatever your ambient light source is so high element cleaning marks on set on, on high up to 11 what would you see if there wasn't any flares down the lens are you going to see much benefit from them it's really more when you start to get flares happening it's just it's adding texture to the flares basically yeah definitely well it's it's not just the flares though it's it's the bokeh as well 
Now, for example, someone um, someone requested some like deep gouges in um, some of the elements, um, as opposed to just cleaning marks. They said, "Oh, can you can you put some really rough marks?" And someone's even asked for dust. And it's because if if you get kind of um, carefully positioned particles, it ends up giving you that look like um, you know when you look look down um, a waste view and. waste level yes. uh, finder on a Hasselblad and it hasn't been cleaned for a while and there's kind of it's almost like it's vignetting a but bit it's of because a through the viewfinder look yeah you know it's got that kind of a bit of grit that you you never really bother cleaning because you know it's not on the actual image you, it's a bit like listening to vinyl and hearing the cracks but because you're used to the cracking sound your your mind kind of just doesn't doesn't look at it or doesn't um, doesn't hear doesn't hear it you know so the train marks are slightly sharpish because of where they're positioned in the lens or um well yeah i mean it's it's very dependent i mean like um i haven't i haven't kind of brought this up but you know no one lens is exactly the same um and we kind of try to unless someone specifically says you know can you replicate this or can you replicate that? Obviously, you know, we, we try and um, introduce um, little things that, that might not be on any other lens. So, you know, like one guy wanted deep gouges. So in effect, you end up with, um, you, you actually see these kind of very, very nice um, kind of marks on, on the bokeh or the flares. Uh, okay, and lens mounts. So you'll do Canon EF primarily, but you also do a whole bunch of others and PL. Yeah, we. Um, I mean, EF is our kind of preferred, um, and then we also do uh, the PL mount, which is a nice stainless steel um, PL. Um, we also do uh, Nikon, which which has been a, a recent development, um, and it's it's quite popular with the Nikon guys because normally they can't make this type of lens work on on their camera and get infinity so we're we're doing some pretty serious um lathe work on these lenses um to kind of allow infinity to be to be achieved um and also uh, sony alpha mount um but um, our kind of new model or the, the kind of professional model that we're um, about to be um unveiling is um it's a 58 mil rehoused and that's only going to be available in the uh the canon ef and the pl versions does that have a name yes it's called the uh, the trump uh, it's uh, the flare factory trump okay and in in effect it's it's a kind of premium version um in a complete uh, machined aluminium rehousing uh with a a vast difference because you've got obviously you've got the the look but you've got the um, option to change your apertures so you'd get say a set of um, different uh, f-stop numbers on each of the different ovals so you get say f2.8 f4 f5.6 and f8 on the ovals and that's same with the um, triangle triangular apertures uh, and we're also um, offering a service where you can actually get branded um, apertures um, which, which again is a little bit gimmicky, but I imagine you know a lot of people might might find that clients would go for something like that. Um, with with the Trump version, we're using an acid etching, so these these um, 
these apertures are absolutely amazingly detailed. So, you know, for example, I could take a photo of your face, bring it into Photoshop and um, turn it into a grayscale. You know, logos and things like that, like the Coca-Cola um, logo would be easy to do. You know, it'd be and it would look absolutely amazing. You know, like uh, we, yeah, we've a done nice a simple logo. I don't know. It's it, it's really cool, and you know, we're going to be shooting some samples of that. But we we got other things like crazy multi-spoked star apertures, and uh, you know, th things that are just kind of not they haven't been seen on any lens. Um, and it's going to create a very, very crazy look because, say, for example, a, a jagged edged aperture with, say, 30 spikes on it, uh, which is around f, f uh, 3.5, I believe, because there's qu quite a lot of detail in there. The moment you start shooting something that has to be, you know, for example, a horror film, right. if you shot a certain scene with... Um, you know, that, that type of aperture, you could kind of almost bake in uh, quite an edgy feeling. And, and because it would only be in the bokeh, you end up having really, really crazy effects on, on the defocus. Well, it sounds nuts. It's, this is all the kind of stuff that you need to be able to see before you can order it, probably. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm pining for these things to get back. We've, we've got them being machined at the moment and um, the laser, uh, not the laser etching, uh, acid etching is coming back soon. And so what we're going to be doing is um, shooting like a, a really nice comprehensive um, test shot of pretty much it will be a lot more kind of controlled and, and we'll show exactly what these things do and, and show kind of the process of changing apertures but you know you can flip over an aperture in less than a minute um, yeah. so it's kind of like almost like changing a lens really um, um, and also we're going to be uh, introducing interchangeable um, tint um, wow. modules as well which will be a mate so in effect this lens will be like a, a kind of a thing that you invest in um, at the start um, you know it's not a massive um, price it's it's um, a lot more than the standard um, Flare Factory 58, but uh, you know it's it's around um, you know it's a proper cine lens. It's um, it's got you know integrated gears on it and uh, you know interchangeable um, mini kind of hoods that kind of go into it. It's uh, it's hard to really describe, and hopefully I'll, I'll be able to provide you with some uh, some nice stuff soon. So. If someone wants to order one, let's talk about the prices and kind of the delivery times and how they get in touch. Well, in effect, I mean, that drop drop um, it's to my personal email address. Um, you kind of send an email and just say, please put me on the waiting list. Um, let, let me know, like, what type of lens you want, either the PL or the uh, DSLR um, mounts. And then, um, you know, I'll, I'll get back to you when we're ready to take an order and when we can guarantee that the lens will go out within um, two to three weeks. Uh, we don't want to kind of start taking loads of orders um, and, and then kind of have people waiting around for ages because it's, you know, I think it's a, a little unfair. And, you know, so so in effect, we're, we're doing a, a process that's a lot more human and a lot more kind of um, di direct. Whereas, you know, if, if we've got... Um, We've got a list of people who want the lens, and most of the time they give us a, a list of the type of look they want. And then, 
most customers it's, it's two to three emails back and forth you know it's so grassroots cottage industry it's there's literally me and i'm kind of full-time uh, assembling lenses we got my my colleague hans uh, hans punk who is um, a kind of another guy who's um, assembling lenses and testing lenses and um <laughs> mainly the anamorphic side of things which uh, we're kind of hoping to kind of touch upon soon um how much are they for a fair factory 58 with the you know bespoke done emails backwards and forwards what's the cost it's uh one, 125 pounds per flare factory 58 and that's in the dslr mount um so you know canon ef uh, nikon or the sony alpha mount um and then this it's for everything. this is not like you find the donor lens and we do it this is including the lens right yeah so in effect it's um it's 125 pound all in but then obviously shipping that's 18 pounds so it's what 143 quid and uh yeah the lens but the the pl version is 260 pounds uh, the main reason that's a, a bit more significantly more expensive is just because we spend um, more time working on it. And um, obviously the mount is a stainless steel mount and, uh, you know, very, very costly to produce that, that part uh, in the numbers that we're doing. Look, I don't think anyone's accusing those prices of being gouging. Uh, the only gouging is in the work you do with the lint, <laughs> not, <laughs> yeah, not, sure. the, not the wallet. Why just the 58mm? It would be great one day to have a couple of other lenses in the range or like a 35 or an 85 or something. Yeah, definitely. I mean, at the moment, the reason we're on the 58 is because it's it's literally the, the most cost-effective, nicest lens available um, to, to do what we want to do. Now, at the moment, we've got an 85 in um, process and we've got a 35 in process as well. And they're both really kind of producing some stuff that uh, I, I was kind of concerned that, um, you know, they wouldn't quite live up to what the Flare Factory 58 is doing. But they're really matching well and they're taking taking what we want to do, um, that kind of nice low contrast look um, but while maintaining the sharpness. So, yeah, we've, we've got a few things in the pipeline um, and I've got a feeling that the 35 and the 85 will probably be uh, more aimed at the, like you say, the kind of uh, production area where people need uh, a set, for example, as opposed to, you know, selling these things. Because I've got a feeling that the 85 will probably be maybe about 300 pounds and the 35 may be the same. It's Just okay, because... Richard, it's okay. <laughs> You've seen how much linens cost, haven't you? Yeah, you have the this, internet on this there. Is this is dog shit. This is dog shit. You know, this this ain't Zeiss. This is, uh, you know, we're, <laughs> we're grassroots. But, but you know, the, the Trump is a completely different thing altogether. And I've, I've got a feeling that maybe the 35 and the 85 may only be available in the Trump version. Um, in order to allow a, a kind of um, matched set all within exactly the same body because the Trump rehousing has been designed with the intention of rehousing these two, the 85 and 35 that we've uh, we got plans for. Excellent. So, yes, they're in the works. Watch this station. Indeed. 
So obviously it makes sense that you're working on lenses that you know. But if someone does have a much-loved lens that they know is good quality, know they love shooting with, but they are happy to have it shit on, <laughs> what yep. will you do that? As long as it's worthwhile, I mean, you know, it's it's kind of, it, it takes a lot of time to do these things. And it's kind of like, um, we've got our production, uh, I say production line, the way we're working is very, very efficient, very, very low overheads. So we know what we're doing with these, um, you know, donor lenses that we're using. Now, I mean, if, if someone was to send um, a, a kind of very valuable lens or, you know, start talking about getting a valuable lens um, modified, you know, we definitely kind of relish the opportunity to kind of um, ruin it, even though like tears will be dripping down our faces as we're you know, taking it apart, knowing that, you know, it's uh, but, you know, it, it's kind of definitely, um, you know, it'd be nice to kind of get a set of compact primes and turn them into something that actually looks interesting. Um, but, you know, 12,000 quid, um, it's a lot of money to kind of throw throw down the drain on a, a kind of a degrade, a degradation because that's all we're doing. We're not, we're not improving sharpness. We're maintaining sharpness of the lens. You're adding and, character, which is something yeah. that I've long said is is slowly becoming getting removed from from what we oh, do, nothing. and I think that is something that people will happy to pay for. Everyone's looking yes. for a point of difference in what they shoot and looking for their stuff to look different to somebody else. And if they can add character, and what you're doing is adding bespoke character, you're yeah actively making sure that every one of these lenses looks different to something else. Yes, indeed. And, you know, it's it's kind of, you know, going back to, you know, what the client wants. We're, we're so used to seeing photoshopped images now that we kind of, we don't trust them. And it's getting to the point with, you know, um, moving picture now because it's so easy to manipulate things to make them look uh, different. The moment you introduce something that has been created in a physical domain it highlights the, the kind of honesty i think you know it's it's kind of if you if you shoot something with a lens or a camera that exhibits a physicality to it you're you're shooting with a kind of lo-fi um low contrast look to start with you get a completely different look and a, a lot more of a physical look than, say, if you were to take a, um, a contrasty lens and, and lower the contrast in post, especially when you're shooting with red or, you know, like a kind of high dynamic range, something with a great colour to it. Mm. It's adding a physicality to a digital world um, where 90% of what we see is, or 99% of what we see is now um, acquired through digital means using lenses that have been made with digital processes whereas what we're using the donors the donor lenses have been designed and made by a guy with a a, a notepad and a, a pen and paper and you know a trial and error making it work and you know it's in the 40s you know there aren't people the people who designed and made these lenses aren't around anymore you know yeah 
Well, look, thank you for bringing analog to our digital world and and the handmade bespoke mindset and keeping it all alive. Thank you, Richard. It's, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Well, thanks for that, Jason. Thanks for that, Richard. Um, and you're getting one of your lenses done right now with it. Right? Yes, he's he's actually doing not a 58 mil. He's doing a uh, contacts 50 mil for me, and a bit of a hybrid between his newer, um, his newer uh, Trump lenses and the smaller flare factories. So yeah, a bit of a bit of a again keeping the bespoke thing alive by doing my lens, one lens completely different to any other. So just to finish out the show, we've got a couple more bits of gear and stuff that um, has been uh, published that we wanted to just flag. Uh, one of them is the uh, seven-inch monitors or the OLED seven-inch Odysseys. Yeah, the conversion design brought out just at NAB, and I think part of the reason I didn't cover it, and I'm still hesitant to cover it, is because it's so fucking confusing. <laughs> <laughs> Worst the, the Odyssey ever. Well, they got it's man, it's complicated. It's um. I mean, it's terrific. Uh, we should definitely talk about it. But I tell you, get your head around the options and the abilities and the rental a day bullshit that goes along with this. Seriously, guys. So the Odyssey 7 is uh, at the heart of it as a 1280 by 800 uh, 7.7 inch OLED monitor, but it has the ability to record internally. Now the small HD have a similar panel, but and it will eventually and their DP7 when it comes out, they'll be able to record internally. But they're really dealing about more for simple onset playback of compressed, you know, like H.264, and recording off a off a SD card. This is more where you want to rec- physically use this as your media recorder and go against Wingo's paradigm and not have your camera record its own shit. So we're talking about stuff that's about, what, uh, 1300 to yeah. 2300 Yeah, 1300 bucks and sliding scale. Well, there's basically two the two hardware models of the Odyssey 7 and the Odyssey 7Q. The difference, main difference between the two is that the Q can actually record four sources at once, to my understanding. Well, it can also record um, HD 2K RAW up to 120 frames a second in DVD. Yeah, these are very capable recorders, and it's very impressive. And although they don't, uh, at 1295, they do not come with any recording media, you, um, I think you have to, you do need to use um, convergence proprietary SSDs. So they're kicking it around six hundred to twelve hundred dollars, kind of design. Yeah, that's right. And it's um, the, the the confusing part comes in the fact that uh, they claim to be com- including some of these. Comp- the original plan was you can have codecs that you rent by the day. Now I don't. I mean, that's just a, just a, that's another production pain in the ass that you just yeah. don't need. Like, just again, I think goes back to you what, know, what Stu's you comment of just just give us what you can, give us everything it's capable of. I know that there is obviously there's with all of these codecs and why stuff like even going back to like QuickTime Pro, you have to pay for QuickTime Pro versus the free QuickTime because you are paying for the license fees for all these. Um, for all these codecs, you know, codecs are owned by third parties. And if you make something with whatever it be, ProRes, or if you're working making something with DNX HD, and eventually some money has to change hands back to, you know, whoever invented this format. Um, so there is a sliding scale of, of what uh, extra codecs you want to record to. So this is a good idea if you're, again, maybe shooting... Mm, an external proxy recorder if you want to record to DNX HD um, off your Epic, say, and obviously still keep your camera raw uh, originals, but immediately walk away at the end of the day with um, with DNX HDs ready to put straight into 
ready to put straight into the. I, I've had some. To, I'm not average, saying so. that it's the case with this company, but I've had some bad experiences buying uh, smaller monitor company monitors. Yes, I gotta say, not against this per se, but I would. I personally would give it a little bit of time before I jumped on board because I want to know. Like, I mean, the thing about small HD, for example, is kind of know the company now, yeah. trust them. Um, I'm a little nervous that there's an OLED kind of shakeout happening, and I don't know Odyssey, and I'm sure they're a great company, but that's my problem. I don't know them. Um, or rather, I don't know the mothership, as it were. Yeah, well, Convergent Design have been around and have done other smaller recorders. Um, the I think it's Genesis, I think, and a few others. But they, this is their larger, their first sort of larger uh, format recorder. Um, but I think the, I, know, the, the, you, I think I, know, just, I guess my issue is with the 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 these kind of kludgy codec rental thing. I think the hardware is probably going to be reasonably sorted, but uh, I have an issue. I mean, the Gemini four 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 yes has been around for a while. Yes, so I don't. I probably shouldn't say that because I probably, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that it that has not been. It's not like Odyssey is brand new. It's just. I don't know. I just have this kind of nervousness around monitors. I don't know why it is, but um, my well, nervousness is. is the fact that it's an external thing that you're relying on. There's something very comforting about your camera recording. You know, it's like it's like having a film camera where you have the magazine in the other room, and you have you know you run your <laughs> You load your magazine through a piece of, you know, through interconnecting plumbing pipe, and then lace the camera, and, and have your negative kind of running through, you know, you know this convoluted path. I just worry that if you're relying on an external recorder, that there is, you can be happily rolling, and and um, uh, you'd be none the wiser if you know something drops out. And yeah, that, I just, that's... I don't know, I, I just, it's just. Point, all those are extra points of failure. It's another thing to power. It's another thing to cable. There's you know points of failure in the external cables. Yeah, I will say most this, people though, who start off with this as your onset workflow generally, if your camera is ninety percent decent, they're generally happy to dump the extra bullshit of the extra external recorders and go with ninety percent versus a hundred percent that works seventy five percent of the time with all the extra shit hanging off your camera. Okay then. Well, let me just take back formally my comments about Odyssey <laughs> being new before I get hate mail because well, I, yeah. I had forgotten look, about I, the Gemini 444. Yeah, look, this is um, you know very impressive but, for the money and yeah. regardless, even if you don't even record anything on it, 1295 for a 7.7-inch OLED with the ability, the option to record stuff is still is, is a good price for a 720p. Um, I'm sure, presume it's the same panel as uh, small HD are using, but would probably have spent more time in their firmware talking about recording and codecs and things rather than the actual, you know, rather than getting the color science right of the monitor. Not that they wouldn't have, but, you know, it's probably more biased towards being a great recorder than a super absolute reference onset monitor. Well, no, hang on. it does have like waveforms and zebras and lots of other stuff. Sure. It's not. So does a fifty dollar HDMI well, knockoff on eBay, but but, uh, but none of that. I'm not saying it's wrong, wrong. But uh, anyway, I think I I I uh, think this will work for some people, uh, particularly if you're more after it as a doing proxies, you know. Right. 
but this is more than capable of recording your final image if you want DNX HDs uh, and um, you know completely uncompressed 2K um, so yeah okay so the only last point is a uh, GoPro now this is um, not a GoPro itself it's software for removing fisheye or lens distortion and uh, certainly denoising and improving GoPro stuff. Unfortunately, though, it's not uh, running on the Mac, as it I understand it. It is not. It's not. It's PC only, which I think is a major step So what's step it called? Uh, it's called Prodrenaline. As so in Adrenaline with a Pro at the front. In Prodrenaline, yeah. Okay. Adrenaline with no A. Now, it's, it's an all-in-one sort of conversion software, I guess, for GoPro. To support 4K, support 2.7K, and it'll do some stabilization. It'll get, it'll do rolling shutter correction. It will correct fisheye perspective, um, and then let you uh, export, I guess, out out to something. <laughs> kind of, kind of looks like it would be um, interesting, though. I have to say, I'm a little nervous. Um Windows Vista, Windows Seven, Windows Eight. Okay, well that's pretty good. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I'm the idea is great. I wish it was Mac as well. But yeah. uh, I like the idea of an all-in-one thing to be able to get you. I guess it's kind of like the very GoPro-specific um, uh, bulletproof that also lets you do some major corrections along the way to fix some of the issues inherent in GoPros, uh, like you know, essentially like rolling, rolling shutter and sort of vibe, you know, fire, high, high. High frequency vibration and um, and the fact you know and just to get out of the get out of the codec that uh, right. that uh, GoPro use, but uh, yeah, I think it's terrific for PC only people. How much is it? Let's see, it is a Windows only device, so we don't actually suss out the price beforehand. But I can we, look it up for you. That's right. I didn't. I, I'm hitting. Why the, do people make PC only products, Jace? Don't they not like us? Good question. I mean, sort of. Is life worth living? Uh, fifty nine seventy, so sixty bucks Australian. Yeah. So I'm saying it's probably. Yeah, I think uh, half of that. It's probably yeah, sort of. Fifty, fifty, sixty bucks. Okay, which is pretty good. I would welcome a Mac version. The stabilizing and if you're in stuff the PC world, terrific. Of this, and if you work with GoPros a lot, I reckon this is an absolute cracker. Stabilizing stuff's good. I haven't been able to test it because I don't own a PC. Maybe in the next month or so, I might go that way. If at WWDC in June, yes. uh, Apple re- launched the Mac Pro and it's a uh, it's a Mac Mini with no slots and um, eight um, eight eight what, Jase? <laughs> what, what are you thinking, Jase? What do you call them? USB ports? No, they're faster thingy. Thunderbolt? Thunderbolt. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, if you could have seen the agonized look on Mr. Wingrove's face then as he was struggling for the oh. Thunderbolt and pointing at his at his computer wildly. I think it's time to get you some lunch. I think we need to feed you and give you give sushi. Yeah, sushi and coffee. Well, sushi followed by coffee. Oh, dear. Hey, um, it's been great having you guys on the show. It's been great uh, having you guys listening to the show. Um, thank you so much. Keep the questions coming. Um, obviously, on Twitter, my friend Mr. Wingrove is. 
Wingrove. Though your website is? Uh, Wingrove.tv. There you go. And, of course, you'll find me over at FX Guide. And not that it's digital cinematography, but check out our Star Trek Into Darkness um, stuff. We've got a huge amount of stuff on Star Trek Into Darkness. If you want to check out all of the uh, tests for the workflow, the stuff to do with the Canon RAW, the stuff to do with the HDMI versus the H.264, that's all over in uh, FXPHD. Dot com inside background fundamentals which is complimentary with any membership of FX PhD. That's it for this week. We're we going to try and get the show out Thank every God fortnight. <laughs> try get the show out every fortnight at the end of the week. So some of you have asked, can we be more regular? Can we be more predictable? We are certainly going to try. So end well, of the week, every two weeks. Um, yeah. And you've course make your be, mind up. <laughs> what? It'll be. Can't be, end of, it'll be. I'll never be predictable, but we might get more regular. There you go. Yes. Oh. Thanks so much for being with us and uh, and thanks to the team behind the scenes for all the editing and the great work they do in uh, putting this together, especially dealing with the editing out of certain... <clears throat> Good thing all of those embarrassing moments got cut out. Really? Okay. Uh, until next time, I'm Mike Simmel. See you guys. Thanks for listening. Send your questions or comments to rc at fxguide.com. Copyright 2011, FX Guide, LLC.